All right, good morning. Good to be with everyone this morning. And uh, it's been a long time, it feels, that we've been together. And I've had a good good holiday. But uh, it feels good to be back with you. Um, just want to echo Mark back here. So glad to see the Killians with us this morning. And uh, it's a blessing to see you guys again. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John. Um, yes, Ben and Abby, we're still in the Gospel of John. And... Uh, Lord willing, we will be through it um, by the end of, uh, end of this year. Gospel of John, look at uh, chapter 16. We're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago in John 16. And before we get going, um, I want to do a little bit of review uh, with where we are at. So back in chapter 15, you can look there, verse 18, Jesus began teaching his disciples about the immense persecutions and the hatred of the world that's going to be coming on them as he departs. He's going to go to the Father, they're going to be left in the world, and they're going to be his representatives, and the hatred of the world is going to transfer onto them. But he's not left his disciples without help. He promises the gift of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And the paraclete will do a number of things. He will first enable the apostles to be authoritative representatives of Christ. He will enable the apostles to reproduce and pass on the words of Christ in the midst of the world's hate. But the disciples are still troubled. They're no longer confused about where Christ is going as they were at the beginning. They know he's going to the Father now. But now their issue is that this has filled their hearts with sorrow, with painful grief is the the idea. Christ, the Messiah, is going away. That's not what they expected him to do. No earthly kingdom. No visible defeat of God's enemies. Instead, his going away will mean that they're going to be left alone in this hostile world, suffering hate and persecution. That's not what was supposed to happen after the arrival of Messiah. And now Christ is going away. And so they're filled with sorrow. And so in chapter 16, verses 6 through 11, Jesus tells them why it's actually better that he goes away. It's better that he goes away because as he goes away, he will accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. The new covenant age will be inaugurated. The kingdom will begin in a significant way. And because of what he accomplished, he will send the Holy Spirit, which is much better than his own presence with his disciples. Well, how can that be so? Why? It's better because the outpouring of the Spirit was the long-anticipated promise of the new covenant age. The outpouring of the Spirit, when he comes, working through the disciples, will convict the world on a scale never before experienced. The coming of the Spirit will result in wide-scale spiritual transformation throughout the world because of the gospel. That's why it's better. But that's not all. Verses 12 through 15, Jesus gives the final promise of the paraclete. Despite all the teaching that Christ has given his disciples, they still cannot bear it. In verse 12, it continues to produce sorrow and confusion. The disciples will only be able to bear Christ's teaching without sorrow, They'll only be able to understand it rightly 
through the lens of the cross and resurrection. And the Spirit will enable them to do just this. He's going to come. He's going to be the Spirit of truth. He will highlight Christ, explain all that Christ has done, unpack the climactic revelation of God in Christ. And when that happens, then they'll be able to connect the dots. Then they will be able to understand Christ's teaching rightly. It won't produce sorrow anymore. They will get it when the Spirit comes. And that is Christ's promise to them. And with that, we come to our passage this morning. We're going to be in John 16, verses 16 to 22, in which we get Christ's promise of immovable resurrection joy. Immovable resurrection joy. Let me pass these out so we get started here. Christ's promise of immovable resurrection, joy. So in these verses, Jesus is now transitioning to preparing the disciples for the events immediately before them, the cross and the resurrection. So far as teaching has only produced their hearts with sorrow and distress, but now in these verses, he wants to teach them about what is about to happen, the cross and resurrection. And why, when that is rightly understood, it should only mean joy for his disciples. Joy. According to Jesus, joy really matters. Your joy really matters. If you were in the main service last week, we talked about abiding in Christ and loving one another, the source of true and lasting joy. It's back in chapter 15, verse 11, and this week, Christ is aiming at your joy. And next week, Christ will aim at your joy. Joy is what ought to characterize a Christian's life on this side of the resurrection. Joy. But why? How so? Let me give you the main point of this passage, and then we will unpack it. The main point we're going to learn is this is that resurrection, end-time joy, is made a present reality for disciples through Christ's resurrection. And while your own physical resurrection still awaits a future fulfillment, and while in this life you will experience hate and persecution, nevertheless, you're able to traverse this with joy in Christ and the eternal resurrection life you presently enjoy through him. We'll unpack what that means this morning. So in these verses, Jesus prepares his disciples for the cross and the resurrection in two stages. He prepares his disciples for the cross and resurrection in two stages. And the first stage is found in verses 16 through 18. Jesus addresses the disciples' ignorance of the events of the cross and resurrection with his puzzling announcement. So Jesus is still on track to teaching them why it's good news that he go away. And in order for them to know this, they have to know the cross and resurrection. Until they understand those events, his return to the Father will not sound like good news. And the full meaning will not be understood. 
So Jesus says what he does in this passage to help the disciples understand what's about to take place better. They don't understand the cross and resurrection yet. They don't understand that before this takes place, he will be crucified and resurrected and reappear to them as the triumphant Messiah before his ascension to the Father. And that changes everything. So resurrection changes everything. So look at this a bit closer. In verse 16, it begins with Jesus' announcement of these two little whiles. Verse 16, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now what does Jesus mean by these two little whiles? And how can it be that they will see him no longer in a little while? And yet, in just a little while longer, they will see him. So if it sounds puzzling to you, just imagine how the disciples are feeling here. Um, It's very puzzling. But Jesus does this on purpose. With this saying, he's intentionally targeting a significant part of the disciples' misunderstanding. He's setting things up to draw them out, to go after what they really need to know. But before we get the explanation of of just what these two little whiles mean, look at verses 17 to 18 where we get the disciples' bewilderment. So Jesus says this puzzling statement, and then verses 17 to 18, the disciples respond. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Now we haven't heard from the disciples in quite a while. Last time we heard from them was back in chapter 14, verse 22, when Judas, not Iscariot, speaks up and asks for clarification. Before that was in verse 8 of chapter 14 and verse 5 and chapter 13, 36. So the disciples are have been interrupting Christ as he's teaching to get clarification. They're they're, they're confused. They're trying to understand what Jesus is saying. But this time, the disciples do not speak up to Jesus. See that? Instead, they start discussing it with one another. Perhaps they're too embarrassed to ask Jesus any more questions, and so they start discussing it with themselves. But look at what the disciples are, are saying to one another. In verse 17, they basically repeat Jesus' words from verse 16 verbatim. What is this he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. So they're struggling with this cryptic saying of of Christ. But then they add something to it. Look at the very end of verse 17. And, what does he mean? A little while you will not see me, and a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. <clears throat> now, Jesus did not say that in verse 16. So, where did that come from? Because I'm going to the Father. Why do they add that there? It's interesting. Well, it came from verse 10. Look up at verse 10. Jesus said, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. 
So the disciples bring this, what Jesus said earlier in verse 10, they bring it in here as well. Um, Because Jesus' departure to the Father in verse 10 is the reason disciples will see him no longer. So it's the same terminology, you'll see me no longer. So they bring it in. And so, in other words, they're wrestling with all that Jesus has said. But it produces confusion. If his going to the Father will be the reason they will not see him, and if that takes place in only a little while, then how can it also be said that in a little while they will see him? It doesn't make sense. Look at verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? This verse tells us that their main problem is what Jesus meant by a little while. They can't piece the timing together. It doesn't make logical sense. How how do these things line up? It says they were saying to one another. It carries the idea they're going back and forth with one another. They're confused. You can probably hear the exasperation in what they say at the end. We, We do not know what he's talking about. What does he mean? And the reason they can't make sense out of Jesus' words here is because they do not yet understand that Christ must rise from the dead. That's the reason. As Jesus will show us in the verses below, this saying, the first little while, is pointing to the time before the cross, after which the disciples will see him no longer. And then the second little while points them to the time before the resurrection after which they will see him. In other words, he's here not speaking about his return to the Father in verse 10, but about what will take place before that. But the disciples can't make sense of it because they have no category for a crucified and risen Messiah. The problem is they do not yet understand Christ's resurrection, that he must rise from the dead. And John tells us just this thing, chapter 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't get it yet. Notice the issue is not that they did not understand the The issue is that they did not understand the Old Testament scripture. The suffering and resurrection of Christ was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. It must happen, John said. But before it happens, due to sin, due to human weakness, they can't see it. They miss it. And that's what the spirits can enable them to do, just to see that clearly. So Jesus says what he does in verse 16, this this puzzling statement to help the disciples understand what's about to take place better. They've come to understand that he's going to the Father, and they will no longer see him after that return, but they do not know that before that takes place, he'll first be crucified, resurrected, and reappear to them as the triumphant Messiah. And until they understand those events, and this is the key, until they understand those events, his return to the Father will not sound like good news to them. The full meaning of that return will not be understood. It will continue to produce grief. And so this is what Jesus will do next. He will explain just what he meant in verse 16. He wants to help them. He wants to help you understand the resurrection and why, when that is understood, 
His departure should not produce distress, but immovable joy in your life. And although the disciples aren't going to get it here in the upper room, Jesus is teaching them now so that when the resurrection happens, they will be able to interpret it correctly. So that brings us to the second stage of this passage in verses 19 through 22. And here Jesus explains the cross and resurrection in terms of the disciples' short-lived sorrow and unending joy. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. So he knows what the disciples are discussing, and he repeats verse 16 again. This is the third time the words from verse 16 are repeated. And he's obviously not asking because he's unsure if this is what the disciples are talking about. He knows this is what they're talking about. He repeats it again in order to set us up. What's going to come in the following verses is going to interpret, explain just what he meant by verse 16. So what did he mean? Well, we're going to see that. Look next at verse 20, where Jesus explains that the two little whiles refer to the temporary grief of the cross, which is transformed into lasting joy of the resurrection. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So this first half of the verse, verse 20, piles up four words for grief and mourning. The word weep, lament, be grieved, and grief. Weeping is almost always associated with someone's death. We saw it back at the tomb of Lazarus in chapter 11. Mary and Martha and the crowds are are weeping, same word. We see it at the tomb of Christ, same word, Mary Magdalene. Chapter 20, verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same word. Mary's weeping is representative of the disciples' sorrow. It's the fulfillment of what Christ said was going to happen here. The word lament means something like to sing a funeral dirge, to mourn for the, for the dead. To be grieved means to have painful inner sorrow. So these are all the emotions that are going to overcome disciples at the death of Messiah. So it's clearly pointing us to the cross, what's going to happen at at the cross. I just want to point out here that this this response of sorrow is not altogether wrong. I think sometimes we give the disciples a a hard time. It was an appropriate response to Christ's cross. It was the response of faithful disciples who love Christ. They trust Christ. Certainly it was mixed with tears and of confusion and unbelief and despair. That part was certainly wrong. They were nevertheless expressions of hearts which loved Christ and grieved over his death. And that response is quite unlike the world's. 
At the cross of Christ, while disciples will weep, look at what the world will do. Verse 20, the world will rejoice. The world which hates Christ. Chapter 7, verse 7. The world which has either been rejecting Christ or persecuting Christ will finally achieve their purpose and desire. The light has been quenched by the world, which is what lovers of darkness want. They want to get them out of there. Or at least they think it's been quenched. Christ's death means joy for the world because they think at last they can silence him. Turn the light off. Defeat his purposes, which they, which they hate. It would be joy for the world. So while the death of Christ looks like success and victory for the world, it looks like defeat for disciples. But something's going to happen in just a little while, Jesus says. It's going to change everything. Look at the second half of, of verse 20. Second half of verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You'll be grieved. It's what they've been feeling all through the upper room. It's going to climax in the cross. But Jesus says something's going to happen that's going to transform that. Something that's the key to everything Jesus has been teaching. And it will only mean joy for disciples. What is it? It's the resurrection of Christ, the victory and triumph of Christ, not the world. We learn about the fulfillment of this promise here in John 20, verse 20, when he appears to the disciples. Look what it says. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were overjoyed. When they saw the Lord. That's how the NIV puts it. I think it's the best. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Upon seeing Christ after the resurrection, the disciples are deep sorrow is transformed into abundant joy. So this, I think, is clearly referring to the resurrection, the second little while. And just notice, joy is the main theme of these verses. It occurs six times. In this passage, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, verse 24, joy is what Christ promises his own disciples, not just the 11, but you and me. And it's this joy which is rooted in the reality of his resurrection. But he's not finished. He's going to go on now in verses 21 and 22 to explain this pattern of sorrow turning into joy again. And he does it because he wants to make it abundantly clear. He's talking about his resurrection and because he wants us to learn the massive significance of his resurrection, what he's going to accomplish in it. Why should that produce joy in your life? All right, so we see the connection between resurrection and joy, but why should it do that? What's the big deal about the resurrection? And why should that produce joy? And that's what he will tell us in verses 21 through 22. These verses, Jesus teaches us the end time joy ushered in through the resurrection overshadows the birth pains of the cross. 
The point Jesus is seeking to make is that their joy cannot come without being preceded by grief. The sufferings of Messiah will mean much painful sorrow for his disciples, but as painful as it will be, the Messiah's sufferings will result in resurrection life. And just as his sufferings meant their sorrow, so his resurrection will mean their joy. So let's look at this a bit closer. Verse 21, Jesus gives us the biblical theological illustration of birth pains. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that, and it will be clear. So look at verse 21. Let's read it. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now this is an illustration of real-life experience, which many in this room have just experienced. Um, Something which I do not pretend to understand. And I add that there because I don't want to get anything thrown at me this morning. Uh, Mamet tells me often, man, I wish you could experience this. (laughs) When a woman's hour of birth arrives, Jesus says, she has grief means anxiety, distress, painful sorrow. Her hour will mean great suffering. Now notice how this first half of this verse lines up with the first half of verse 16 and the first half of verse 20 and the first half of verse 22. In other words, all these are parallel. He's explaining the same thing over and over again. It describes the sorrow of, that will accompany the sufferings of Christ. Christ here says the hour. If you've been with us in John, that word is pregnant with meaning. The hour. The woman's hour. In John, the hour almost always refers to the appointed moment of Christ's crucifixion. What's interesting here is that the sorrow of the woman is meant to illustrate not the sorrow of Christ, but the sorrow of who? Of the disciples. Isn't that interesting? Just hours away from the moment of Christ's greatest agony, he's still concerned mainly with his disciples. Their sorrow, their grief. Oh, the agony that Christ was going to endure, but his focus is on the agony of the disciples that they will experience because of his death. And when we see that, we can understand the second half of the illustration. Look at the at the rest. But when she has delivered the baby. She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Her sorrow will not last forever. It's immediately changed. The point is that something takes place through the suffering, which causes an immediate change, says that that suffering, that tribulation, is not even considered any longer. The picture is that what comes after the anguish is so magnificent, it swallows up. It overshadows any amount of pain and sorrow before. So great is the result that the suffering paled in comparison. So what's the result? The result is that a human being has been born into the world. It's a beautiful thing. 
to watch a brand new baby come into the world. I've experienced it three times. It brings tears to my eyes almost every time. And to see the immediate love and joy of a mother in that new life. And if the first half of the illustration applied to the hour of Christ's suffering and the disciples' sorrow in the midst of it, then the second half of the illustration clearly applies to Christ's resurrection in which, like a newborn baby, resurrection life will burst into this world. And as with the mother, so also with disciples, the joy that will result will overshadow all the grief that they experienced in the cross. So it's a human illustration, a real-life example. But why did I call this point the biblical, theological illustration of, of birth pangs? It sounds like seminarian language. What are you talking about, Michael? Well, it's actually pretty, pretty simple. Biblical theological simply refers to the progression of themes traced through the unfolding of redemptive history. So from cover to cover in your Bible, the Bible is unfolding God's plan of redemptive history, right? And through that unfolding plan, there are certain themes that are traced throughout, which, which develop and grow and, and build on one another. And this picture of birth pangs here is not an accident, it picks up on an important theme that's been developing in the Old Testament. So here Jesus connects his cross and resurrection to Old Testament expectations. Birthing language, escalating tribulation, escalating pain before the inbreaking of final salvation is used throughout the Bible and in Judaism to illustrate the end time. It illustrates the end time. D.A. Carson writes this, the combination of intense suffering and relieved joy at childbirth is in the Old Testament a common illustration of the travail. God's people must suffer before the immense relief and joy brought about by the advent of the promised messianic salvation. Let me give you one example from Isaiah 26, this is in a section of Isaiah where it's looking forward to the last day, the final restoration. It says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she's near to giving birth. So were we because of you. Look at how the passage goes on. What does it end with? But the resurrection from the dead. Your dead shall live. Your body shall rise. You who lie in the dust shall awake and sing for joy. Birth pangs became a common metaphor in Judaism for the trouble that would be experienced before the resurrection, the final consummation. But Jesus here applies it to his own death and resurrection. So what's Jesus doing? What does he mean? I think he means that as the Messiah, Christ endured the end time judgment on the cross. And through the cross and what he accomplished there, he was resurrected to this kind of end time resurrection, new life. In other words, Christ's death and resurrection are end time events. They're end time events events 
They are events which usher in the end time. The last days, the promised final last days, the consummation. Oh yes, there's still a consummation coming. There's still a great tribulation coming. There's still the resurrection of the dead for you physically coming. But with Christ's cross and resurrection, that age, the new creation, the restoration of all things has already, in some sense, begun now. And this theme of what we've called inaugurated eschatology, the eschatology has begun now. It's been everywhere in John, every chapter we've seen it. Because of Christ's cross and resurrection, the new creation age, the resurrection age has already begun and it is experienced now in this life spiritually. Let me show you the verse. I think that captures it better than any other in John. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, has now presently eternal life. Eternal life is the life of the age to come. You have it now. What does that mean? It means you do not come into judgment. The final eschatological judgment of God that's coming, it's, it's done. You've passed it already. It took place at the cross. But you've passed, already passed, from death into life. Now. A massive turning point took place at the cross and resurrection of Christ. He brought the end time judgment. He bore it for sin on your behalf. And through the birth pangs, he resurrected to eternal life with a glorified body that will one day characterize the entire new creation. That's why the event of Christ's resurrection means eternal, immovable, permanent, lasting joy for you and for every disciple. Not only does it secure your future resurrection, it does. But it brings you now, today, into the experience of eternal new creation, resurrection, life. And in this way, Jesus says, you, my friends, will never die. You will never die. John 8, 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John eleven twenty five to 26, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, oh, you'll die physically, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives now has eternal life now and believes in me shall never die. Any persecution you experience, any hatred of the world you experience will not mean death for you. You've already entered into life. Because of Christ's resurrection, you will never die die. Well, now we come to verse 22. And in this verse, just to make his point unmistakable, Jesus is going to apply the illustration of the birth pangs. Look at verse 22. So also you, disciples, have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. He says the disciples now have sorrow. So imminent is the cross. Their sorrows have already begun. But just as the joy of the birth of a baby overshadows the birth pain, so Jesus identifies the resurrection will be the basis of 
the disciples' joy. So let me show you a few things really quickly. Number one, Jesus says, I will see you again. This joy will be based on Christ's resurrection appearance. Notice how this changes a bit from verse 16. Verse 16, he says, you will see me. Here it says, I will see you. After a little while following Christ's cross, the disciples will see Christ again, but they'll see Christ again because Christ will first see them. He's going to come to them in the cross and in the resurrection. Look again at chapter 20, verse 20, where this is fulfilled. When he said this, he showed them his hands. He comes to his disciples. When they saw it, they were overjoyed. That's the birth of the baby. Christ, in his resurrection, coming to his disciples. And the result of seeing the resurrected Christ will be joy. And this joy is eschatological. Look at the verse. It says, your heart will rejoice. Now by eschatological, I simply mean this is end time joy. Experience now. So when you think about the new creation, okay, Revelation 21 to 22, the the culmination of all things, he'll wipe every tear from your eye. Joy is going to characterize that age, right? You think about it, it's a time of of joy. Of, Of course it is. But Jesus says the joy of the age to come is your joy now. It's a present joy now. So where do I get that from? Okay, Michael, where, where do you get that this is eschatological joy? It's because these words here, your heart will rejoice, are the exact words quoted verbatim, word for word, from the Greek Old Testament in Isaiah sixty-six fourteen, which is all about the new creation. Let me show it to you quickly. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Only place in the whole Bible, exact same phrase, your heart will rejoice. And what's very interesting is that this passage, Isaiah 66, about the restoration of Jerusalem and the new creation, how does it begin? Then with talk about birth pains. In verses 7 to 9, I think Jesus is intentionally connecting us back through the resurrection of Christ, The promised age has come. The consummate age of resurrection and new creation has been made a present reality. And that means end time joy for you now. And this joy is permanent. He says your joy no one will take away from you. No one. Not persecution. Not the hate that's coming not disaster or suffering, not anyone or anything can take this joy away from a disciple. Well, why not? Well, think of two reasons. Number one, use the words of D.A. Carson. We've already said, once disciples rejoice after the resurrection, no one will take away their joy because the resurrection of Jesus is not merely a discrete event, but the onset of the eschatological age, the dawning of the new creation, the precursor to the age of the paraclete. It's because you now possess eternal life. What's going to characterize the age to come but the presence of God, knowing God? And that's yours now. This is eternal life, that they know you, the eternal God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So do you have this joy? 
of knowing God now in Christ. I think there's another reason no one will take away the disciples' joy. It's because his joy is attached to Christ. And no one can destroy Christ ever again. Their sorrow was attached to Christ's sufferings, and their joy is attached to Christ's life. And Christ will never die again. So you see, this is only a promise for those whose joy is Jesus. It's not for anybody else. You have no guarantee for anything in this life except suffering and persecution. But a disciple's joy is unmovable because it's not rooted in those things. This is what the disciples need in verse 6. They don't understand Christ's resurrection, but when they do, it will mean joy. So what about you? Where are you at? Where is your joy? Is it rooted in what happens to you in this life? Or is it rooted in the truth that Christ lives? That Christ is your life? That with the eyes of faith you've seen him and one day you'll see him completely. If your joy ebbs and flows because of the things that happen in this life, and of course you're going to experience sorrow. This doesn't mean you don't have sorrow. I mean fundamental, rock-solid joy in the midst of sorrow and suffering. If that comes and goes, it's because your joy is not rooted in the life of Christ. And that's what we're called back to. A relationship with the risen and reigning Christ. And while we still endure birth pains in this life, and they're going to climax one day, nevertheless we endure all those with the joy of the life we now have with God because of the resurrection. And that is the promise of immovable resurrection joy that Christ gives to you and me. So we're about out of time. Any questions, comments before we wrap it up? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ. Help us, Lord, to know him better. That he would be our joy in the midst of the sufferings and the sorrows and pains of this life. We can have rock-solid, immovable joy, which is in knowing Christ and the expectation to see Him again. Knowing what You've accomplished and that we have end-time joy in the experience of Your presence now. We love You and praise You. Prepare our hearts now for the service to come. In Jesus' name, Amen.